0: This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred rights.org, that's W R I T E S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. One of my favorite topics to learn about within religious communities and practices are the ways music is used in devotion. I like the symbolism of musical sounds, rhythms, and vibrations that permeate a sacred space and the sense of celebratory atmosphere and community music establishes. Another topic I love is how deep and meaningful friendships can emerge from within communities that sustain us. Through the cyclical ups and downs of life. I am delighted that this conversation with Amber Dromgoole combines these two worlds of the beauty of music and the transcendent nature and value of friendship. In this conversation, we trace Amber's path of appreciation for music and religion, discuss her research in Black Holiness Pentecostalism, and explore the importance of friendship through the life stories of Brianna Taylor a 26-year-old black American woman murdered by police in her apartment on March 13, 2020, as well as Sister Rosetta Tharp, an American singer and guitarist who achieved renown in the 1930s and 1940s. The ways women lift each other up in friendship is a central story Amber tells within this episode, and I hope the lessons resonate with all listeners. Amber Dromgoole is a doctoral candidate in the departments of Religious Studies and African American Studies at Yale University. She graduated from Oberlin College and Conservatory in 2015 with a BA in Musical Studies and Religion and then obtained an MA in Religion from Yale Divinity School and Institute of Sacred Music with a concentration in Black Religion and the Arts. Amber is interested in the convergence of Black Religion and popular culture focusing on the emergence of various musical genres from women in the Black Holiness Pentecostal tradition. If you want to follow her work, you can find her on Twitter at AmberLenay, that's A-M-B-R-E-L-Y-N-A-E, or at AmberDromgool.com. You can also find a link to the fabulous articles that Amber has written in the show notes. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Amber Drumgool. Amber Drumgool, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks, Greg. It's so wonderful to have you here, Amber. I'm just wondering if we can start off by just having you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit, however you see fit. Help everybody out there get to know you.
1: Absolutely. As Greg has said, my name is Amber Drumgool. I am a scholar of Black women, music, and religion, which just means that I like thinking about how wonderful and talented and intelligent Black women musicians are and have always been, and the communities they build for themselves. That's what gets me up in the morning. It excites me and what keeps me reading and writing, even when I don't feel like it sometimes.
0: Nice. Um, Amber, what is your, uh, yeah, I want to start a little bit with with music in a little bit, but I'm curious about your your academic path as well as your musical path. I know that you're super interested in music. Did you grow up musical in a musical household? Like what is your music history like?
1: I did. So I was first exposed to music at my church, the church I was raised in, in Nashville called Born Again. And I remember I was so upset. It actually, my story starts with me being offended (laughs) at the injustice of it all, because they were starting a children's church choir. The adult choir was called Born Again Minstrels and they were going to be bam. And the children's church choir was going to be shabam, like the children's (laughs) Born Again Minstrels. And I was so excited, but you had to be seven to join. And I was only five and a half at the time. So I'm getting on everybody's nerves. I'm getting on my mom's nerves, the directors that was, I remember their name, Sister Nawana, Miss Toy and Miss Angelia. I was like, y'all have to let me in. Like, I want to sing. My mom, has, my mom has me in everything else and all I want <laughs> to do is make music. So they split the difference and let me join at six. And from then on, music has been a really, really, core part of my life I can't imagine my world without music in and in at the very beginning black women have always been at the center those directors helped me begin getting impassioned about what I wanted to do
0: awesome so did you uh what was your like musical performance like were you as always a singer did you get into instruments you like do you play anything like how does that how did that look for you
1: So I first started playing piano Mm -hmm. as many Black children, our grandparents or somebody has an upright piano somewhere. And that means that all of us have to learn to play something, but that didn't last very long. I wish it had, but it didn't last very long. And, but the majority of my life has been spent singing. So I started in the children's church choir. I then remember seeing a community choir on stage at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center for their Let Freedom Sing program that they do to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. every single year. And I remember being like, I was like, probably 10 at this time. And I was like, mom, mom, I want to be in that group. So then I joined the community choir. And then I got to middle school and I joined that choir as well and start taking voice lessons, get into high school. I'm in mixed choir and show choir. I am musical, musically directing some of the musicals for those, uh, some of those productions. And it's music literally has been everywhere this entire time, get to college and I'm in literally every group that they'll let me in.
0: Nice. What was that that the church that you grew up in? Did you say what the denomination of that church was?
1: Yes, this was a Pentecostal church, somewhere between Pentecostal and non-denominational. Uh they weren't necessarily in a denomination themselves. They were an independent Pentecostal church, mm-hmm. but yeah, they were definitely Pentecostal and that definitely has a huge plays a huge role in how I experienced music growing up.
0: Absolutely. And I was just, you know, sort of setting the context for where you go as a scholar as well, because I feel like all of that backstory is so essential to informing and, you know, probably inspiring the directions that your work has gone, wouldn't you say?
1: It has been. I, but I did not think that I was going to be studying this at all. I did not know that studying Black Pentecostal music was a path that you could even, even take. So when I grew up in music, you were shown two different paths. You could go into music education and be a kid through 12 teacher, which had had a huge impact on my personal life. But I wasn't quite sure that that's what I wanted to do professionally. Mm-hmm. But the other route was you could be a professional musician. And I was like, OK, so I'm going to I'm going to be a professional musician. I can do this. I think this will be cool. <sighs> I get to Oberlin which is my undergrad, Oberlin is a college and a conservatory. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if many people listening are familiar with conservatories, but for me, when I got there, I saw people who actually wanted to be professional musicians. And mm. I quickly learned that I did not. So I'm seeing people very disciplined in their pr- approach. They are in the practice rooms for six to seven hours a day. They in not in that, when not in the practice rooms, they are... St- Singing with each other, they are listening to other artists, they are really learning about the skill. And I'm like, I don't think that's what I want to do. Yeah. But I already messed up my other chance to be in <laughs> music <laughs> education. So I don't know what I've got left. So I'm still a music major at this point, but I start like picking up religion classes, Mm. just because I'm interested. So like a religion class here, religion class there, using up all of my electives. And I get to my senior year and my advisor is like, you know, you could just fill out the major paperwork. You've taken enough classes to be a religion major. At this point, you just need to take this capstone class and you need to write a thesis about it. And I'm like, Okay, well, religion and music, music and religion, how am I going to bring all this together? And at this point, there's this huge con- confrontation going on in Pentecostal churches, which is what I call the white dress controversy. And that's by Erica Campbell, who, for those who don't know, she is part of the duo Mary Mary. And she was putting out a solo project at this time. And she had on this really beautiful, form-fitting white dress on her cover, gorgeous about Kathleen. Her hair is like straight and slick and all of the wonderful things. But the Pentecostal community and Black church communities were getting angry at her for her curves showing on mm-hmm. the album cover. And I'm like, wait, why, why is everybody so angry? I think she looks beautiful here. So I asked my advisor, I was like, can I, can I write about that? Like, can I write about, like, Black Pentecostal women and music and the nexus of their their different ways of expressing themselves? And my advisor was like, sure, go ahead. That sounds great. And I've been chasing those same questions this entire time.
0: So when you graduated from Oberlin, it looks like I was reading a little bit of your bio, and it looks like you wound up at Yale Divinity School and Institute of Sacred Music. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition from Oberlin over to Yale's Divinity School?
1: Absolutely. It, it threw me and my entire family for a loop at that point. I thought (laughs) so many, so many different parts of my story, throw everybody for a loop, but I was actually planning to go to Columbia for arts administration at the time that I fell in love with my research and back to my advisor's office. Like, what do I do now? I had this entire plan and she's like, okay, have you ever considered doing a master's in religion, just to kind of get your head around what you wanna do. If you wanna go further into scholarship and academia, if you don't, cool, go your own way, but why don't you just try it out? So I applied to two arts administration's programs and two divinity school programs. And I'm like, well, whoever takes me, then my my whole path will be chosen. That, that didn't necessarily work. So I ended up going to Yale and their Institute of Sacred Music combined with, I was a Master of Arts and Religion candidate. So I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't a Master of Divinity, which is the more professional track and the more clergy-oriented track. Mm-hmm. I was a more scholarly-based track that's fitting people to go further into scholarship and academia. And I'm falling more and more in love with my work. I'm starting to talk to more people about my work and really thinking that this is the path for me. So the Institute of Sacred Music gave me more time to kind of get my life and my ideas together before going into the PhD program.
0: Mm, that's so interesting that there's a couple of paths that you can take within that program to where one's more scholarly and one's a little more um, you know, professional into the field. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that, that, that those two t- different tracks existed. So maybe that might be helpful information to somebody out there listening who's thinking about going into a Master's of Divinity program. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I hope so. And of course there's some overlap. Of course, there are MDiv candidates that go on to get their PhD. They are there are Masters of Arts and Religion candidates that go on to do work in clergy or go on to switch over into MDivs. There's overlap, but there are different ways and different degrees for people who want to do or see themselves doing different things, which helped me a lot.
0: So after you finished that, after you matriculated with the masters, did you go straight into the PhD program at Yale? Is that was that like a pretty seamless transition?
1: I don't know that I would call it seamless, but I did go (laughs) directly into the Yale PhD program. But the thing to know about that is that the Divinity School and the Religious Studies Department, which is what holds the, what holds the PhD program, they aren't necessarily seen as together. There's no, there's no distinct pipeline. For Mm. students that want to go into PhD work to go directly into PhD work in that particular department. I was the first person in a long time that got into my track in American religious history um, that was able to research in the PhD. So it, it was a different experience, but it was, I went directly through. I've gone directly through this entire time.
0: Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Well, and now um, all of these stories and paths that you have followed led you to our conversation today. And it also finds you as a member of the 2020 Sacred Rights cohort of scholars. And, you know, so this is an organization that I have a tremendous amount of respect for because of uh, what they do within the field of public scholarship, which is what I'm super interested in. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about why you applied to the fellowship with sacred rights and what sorts of skills you feel you are adding to your scholarship toolbox by being a part of this fantastic cohort.
1: Yeah, so because I was raised within the communities I research, it has always been important to me for my work to be relatable and accessible, because it's not just me looking in from the outside. These are my friends, my family, my loved ones, people that I, my work is honestly accountable to, but I can't, it can't be accountable to those communities if they don't have access to it. So I, that was my primary reason for applying to sacred rights, to be able to relate my work to different communities and to be able to get it to communities that really needed to hear it or who might need to say something back to me that wouldn't have access to journal articles that are behind paywalls or academic books and presses that might be a little bit more expensive, or they just don't want to buy, which is fine also. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was very much about my publics, publics that I'm a part of having access to the work that I'm doing about them. Mm -hmm. So Sacred Rights has been incredible for getting the skills to do that. We've had Op ed training, we have had training on how to write explainers, and even this most recent module on live work, which has me working with you. Uh, It has been wonderful um, for how to express my work to different spaces and to different people who wouldn't have access to it otherwise.
0: Fabulous. Well, and so I was looking on your your bio, and I know that your work focuses on Black religion and popular culture, focusing on the emergence of various musical genres from women in the Black holiness and Pentecostal traditions. How would you describe your sort of like wheelhouse of what it is that you do within scholarship? How do you, like, what's your elevator speech, so to speak?
1: Oh my goodness, I hate elevator speeches. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my, my elevator speech would be that I study probably 20th century to 21st century Black women in spiritual music. I say spiritual music specifically because I don't necessarily focus only on Black gospel music traditions, but people whose work may or may not be informed by those traditions. So that'll lead me into some Alice Coltrane and some Nina Simone, who I also work on, but wouldn't necessarily be considered gospel musicians in the traditional way. So is that good? I- yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> well, and so I know that um, I, I've been looking at some of your work recently, and I want to talk about a recent article of yours about Brianna Taylor, a name I know that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. But, you know, you, you write about uh, Taylor extensively in a new piece that you did in the Revealer magazine about Black women and friendship. And you also examined the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp within that article as well, which was such a fascinating piece of looking at these groups of friends from across two different eras of history, and discussing like the the socio political context uh, surrounding the eras in which they lived. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's kind of set the stage with the the recent event of um, the murder of Breonna Taylor. Tell me your memories about how you like process the timeline of events surrounding this uh most tragic of events.
1: absolutely. So for those who may not be aware, not sure how you would, but for those who may not be aware, Brianna Taylor was murdered on March thirteenth, 2020 um by Louisville police officers in possession of what's called a no-knock warrant. So on TV and whatever, you'll see police go, police, and like knock, knock, knock before entering somebody's house. Well, mm-hmm. in Brianna Taylor's case, they the no-knock warrant allows them to enter a residence or building without that type of warning, which mm. can be scary for somebody who's not expecting visitors, for somebody who is on edge anyway. So- her boyfriend ends up letting off a shot and that goes down this this lets off this entire train of events where police respond in excessive force and Breonna Taylor ends up getting killed but I honestly don't remember hearing about Breonna Taylor before George Floyd who was murdered about a week and a half later Mm -hmm. um, on March 25th and at this point we'd all been in quarantine with stay-at-home orders for about a couple of weeks and We're all scared and stressed and worried about our own lives in multiple ways. But for me, it was a little bit different. I know there will be people that identify with this, but not everyone will. I actually have an organizing past. So a past in protest, a past in uh, working towards political injustices. And I was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder because I had been doing this organizing since probably sophomore year and undergrad. My sophomore year, there were several overtly racist attacks on my college campus. And then my senior year, Tamir Rice was killed in Cleveland. Mm. And that's only like 30, 45 minutes away from Oberlin is. So we're traveling from Oberlin to Cleveland to be in the streets to protest, to do all of these things. I was also going home over the summers and organizing with Black Lives Matter and getting this army for children. And so I'm just going, 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 not stopping probably for six to seven years. So at this point, Brianna Taylor happens and my body is literally like, no, like we cannot do this anymore I I hadn't learned yet how to take care of myself and organize at the same time Mm. and there's this this phrase in theater the body knows like the body would tell you what to do but my body was telling me to sit down that somebody else had to take care of this because I could no longer do the intake or or the work the work that other people were doing in the streets so this ended in me getting off of social media completely for about three to four months, because I just couldn't deal with the onslaught of information, the videos, the images. So that's how I experienced that entire timeline of seeing it and then going back in the past and reliving and the stress disorders and then just completely isolating because I can no longer deal with what's happening.
0: Mm, oh my goodness. Well, and you know, something that I think about a lot when I when I was reading your, your piece is you write about mortality. And you know, as I creep towards middle age, um, I, I've I've tried to to listen more. Do you know what I mean? Like life is fast, time is short. And as I was reading the beginning of your article, um, you wrote about how Hulu's algorithms sent you into the New York Times documentary about uh Brianna's murder, and you wrote that it reminded you about mortality. Can you verbalize the sense of mortality, which is hugely woven throughout religion as well. Um, Seeing stories like that of of Brianna, can you talk about a little bit about mortality in that experience?
1: Yes, I can. So alongside the PTSD of my past organizing experience, what made the Brianna Taylor situation particularly difficult is that Brianna Taylor and I have a good amount of things in common, enough to look at it look at her and see myself specifically. So we are both dark-skinned, thicker Black women. We are six weeks apart in age. Mm. And I grew up in Nashville. Breonna Taylor grew up in Louisville. That's about two and a half hours apart, depending on who's driving. So geographically, phenotypically, we are similar. So when I'm seeing her, I'm I'm thinking back, I'm thinking of the times my mom was pulled over by police while dropping my friends off from choir practice and how they, the police officers beamed flashlights into mine and my brother's eyes um, and searching the car even without her or my mom's knowledge. I'm, I remember in college when a group of friends and I were pulled over in Amherst, Ohio and forced to stand in the rain. So I'm thinking of all these experiences and how I don't know if the next one, because many Black people will tell you, we know that there's always going to be a next one. This is never not the last time that you'll experience some form mm-hmm. of injustice, but I'm specifically thinking thinking about whether it's going to be my last time, mm. the next time, and how young Brianna was and how young I am and how similar our lives paths have been. So it it forced me to face or look, mortality really dead in the face um, in ways that I hadn't previously.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and you and I are on video right now. People are listening to this in audio, but I'm I'm looking at you right now and, you know, you're like a vibrant, alive person. And, you know, like if, if I was sitting here talking to an alive Brianna right now, it would be very similar. You know what I mean? So the, the notion of looking at a person... Uh, through a video like you and I are looking at each other right now, and knowing that I could be similarly having a Zoom call with that exact person who was, you know, murdered in their sleep, essentially, for absolutely no reason whatsoever. It's really chilling, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And then you write also about forcing yourself to bear witness to this documentary film, despite, you mentioned, despite your better judgment of knowing that it would cause pain. And sometimes, you know, I find myself looking at painful things on purpose because I feel like in the moment it serves a purpose to what I'm personally experiencing. But your article was also released before the January 6th insurrection at the US Capitol, which would have had much different results if the assailants and rioters were a different demographic. We all know that to be true. Like, did you think about brianna black lives matter george floyd philando castile um alton sterling and countless others while bearing witness to the events at the u.s capitol just barely more than a month ago as of this recording
1: i absolutely did and i had several conversations with friends about it we all said the same thing if the if they were black they'd have never made it past the Capitol steps no way we're all watching we're literally watching this and being black in that moment is a special experience because you have like this rage kind of bubbling up but you're also not surprised and you're also like I told you so and then you're also like I y'all gotta handle this
0: Mm -hmm.
1: y'all have to handle this but we were all having similar experiences in fact there's a story of a Black woman that was killed by Capitol Police in 2013. Her name was Miriam Carey. So it's mm-hmm. not even just, oh, I imagine that this would happen to Black people. Is that, no, this has actually happened to Black people. So again, I'm remembering the black people that are dehumanized during Black Lives Matter protests, that devastating picture of a girl, and I can't remember her name right now, but she's in this flowy sundress, standing very peacefully with her arms in front of her with two police officers in full on riot gear. I'm um, also, and this happened in Baton Rouge. And then I'm i am thinking about Brie Newsom, who took yeah. down the Confederate flag in North Carolina. And I've seen her speak and she talks about how she looked down and she saw police officers holding a taser very close to the pole. So the implications of that are astounding. So as a Black person during this time, you're remembering, not just imagining, but remembering all of the instances that Black people were not afforded the type of humanity and the excuses really that the people uh, who participated in the January 6th insurrection had. And it's it, it inspires an amount of rage that doesn't even come out as rage anymore. It comes out as mirth sometimes. It comes out as jokes.
0: Well, and I didn't even know about that 2013 example. So I'm learning something brand new. So it's not even a theoretical imaginary uh, scenario that I'm posing. It's actually a real thing. You can connect to events that happened during, you know, the Obama presidency.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even in articles about that, it happened in 2013. Her sister is now petitioning or campaigning on her behalf. And her sister, when they did the research, they said there had been other people who had driven past those gates, but they had all been arrested and they had all been white. Mm. Her sister is one of the only people to have been killed on the near the Capitol by Capitol police. And she was black. So yeah, it's just a lot.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, I want to get into Sister Rosetta Tharp as well. But I also want to know because you have this connective tissue within the article where you talk about the friendships the importance of the friendships of Brianna and um and Sister Tharp.
1: Mm-hmm. Can
0: you tell me a little bit about hearing stories about Brianna's life from her friends in the aftermath of her murder?
1: Yes, that was the saving grace of the mm-hmm. documentary for me. Beautiful. Their names are Alicia, Priyania, and Katrina. I don't believe they said them out loud, so I could be saying them wrong if they are. Apologies. Uh, But they made appearances in the film, and they were truly a breath of fresh air for me. Uh, As many would assume, the film is difficult to watch. There's a lot of hard images and information. There's details about the murder. There's weapons, the grief, and the injustice. It's difficult to witness. But when Brianna's three friends come on the screen, though they're very obviously still grieving and still sad, they're telling stories of Brianna growing up and how inspiring she was to them and the jokes they told each other, their plans to travel together. They illustrated a humanity um, and really an intimately known and loved Brianna that I think is often left out of media representations of her. She's not just a hashtag. She was a person with a life and dreams and people that loved her that didn't get to live that out. And being able to see that through the voices of her friends, it impacted me significantly.
0: How did those stories uh, maybe alter or inspire the way you approached your own friendships from there on out?
1: Mm-hmm. I It's funny. I talked to my friends best friend, Edlyn, Edlyn Jones about this all the time. And she said one day, as I was working on the article, she was like, you know, what you're saying is that these Black women friendships you write about, you're talking about them like they're sanctuary. And I'm like, sick. Well, that's exactly what, that's perfect. I was like, that's absolutely perfect and really transformed the way I think about Black women and friendship, I began to recognize that there is something Black women give each other that a white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal world simply cannot. And that, that peace, that joy, that honor, that protection in a way and love are things that Black women give to each other that are life-sustaining and affirming in word worlds that intentionally try to kill us and tear us down.
0: Mm, It's really amazing. Like the way that you can, um, you know, think about a tragedy and process it and not like forget it or forgive it, but use it as a way to move forward with good in your life. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's, that was something that really stood out to me about the piece is that even though this is horrendous and painful and tragic, that The fact that it might um, help you move forward in more beautiful ways with your own friends is um, pretty inspiring for me as well because we're all living in such isolation at the moment that that really inspires me too you know
1: and for me i had to find a way a different way out because as i said before my typical run get into the center organize, push through wasn't working my body wasn't allowing me to do that so reorienting towards friendship and considering different ways to be able to approach this and build myself up and continue to keep moving. Yes, I, it, I'm I happy with the article and I am glad that people read it and enjoyed it, but it was really me writing through and trying to find a solution mm-hmm. to being stuck at that moment and Black women got me out of it.
0: Mm, beautiful. Well, and speaking of building each other up, you, you feature another figure within this article, that is somebody whose music I have now been exploring for the past week or so, <laughs> In and I've just been having a blast. And that's the the work of Sister Rosetta Tharp. But like the story of Brianna and her friends seems to have shifted an orientation in your work as well. And like, you have this beautiful connection that you make between the lives of Sister Rosetta Tharp, her friends Mox, or Roxy Ann Moore and Marie Knight to Brianna Taylor, uh, to Brianna and her friends. And for anybody out there listening who may not know those names that I mentioned, um, who are Rosetta, Roxy, and Marie, and how did you come to care about their lives?
1: Yeah, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Roxy, and Moore, and Marie Knight were early 20th century Black women musicians who got their starts in the Church of God in Christ. And for those who don't know, the Church of God in Christ is one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the world. It is... Majority black, and it began in around 1906. So these women are part of like the early days of this denomination and its growth. Uh, people may be more familiar with Rosetta, who, as of recently, and uh, and in no small part due to the scholarship of Gail Wald. Uh, whose contributions to music and particularly rock and roll have been recognized, but Marie was a singer and musician as well. She performed alongside Rosetta in the mid 20th century before carving out her own career. And then Roxy is a composer, though she is probably the least known of the three. She's, I'm most intimately familiar with her and her work. Yeah. I actually, was introduced to her family and her daughter and have been doing interviews with them and she has this wonderful collection of of not only Rosetta's work but also her own work so I've been doing a lot of work closely with them um but she spoke out against injustices in Pentecostal churches she owned a record store in Philadelphia at one point and she made Music because she loved it, but wasn't ever completely invested in showbiz like the other two. So all three of them at one point or another were on the outskirts of the Church of God in Christ because of their orientations to showbiz, the Church of God in Christ, and many Black Pentecostal circuits at that time did not like or appreciate that. And Rosetta was singing at the Cotton Club um, in New York and, and traveling. And, and Roxy was speaking out against them. Marie was so they're all kind of on the outs. Um, and they fell outside of Kojic doctrine. But most important to me about them is that they were friends and they supported each other through this institutional isolation, through the Church of God in Christ or Kojic uh, being upset with the, with the path their lives took. They never lost track of each other and they remained very connected and supportive.
0: Did the Church of God in Christ, so like was spirituality important to all of them, even though they were sort of like butting heads with their spiritual leaders themselves?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp always maintained that the work that she did was in service of of her own spirituality and wanting to share it with others. So she always considered herself the same revival worker that she was growing up as as a child and teenager um, while navigating the Kojic circuits. And Roxy always, 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 even though she intentionally pulled herself away, she used to be an evangelist, which is a woman minister in Kojic. She, she deliberately neglected to reinstate her evangelist license because she didn't agree with some of the things that they were doing, but that didn't stop her from ministering wherever she felt was necessary. And Marie, she goes on to have an RB career at one point, but again, always sees herself up until the end, as spiritual, as somebody whose work is in service of God.
0: Mm. You know, and as I was like digging in a little bit, I went on YouTube and I was finding some videos of Sister Rosetta Tharpin She is an absolute guitar shredder. She yes. crushes, like her licks and riffs are so wonderful. Incredible. And like, I-, I couldn't believe like some of the videos I watched had like four or five million views of some of these videos of her performing. And I was just like, you know, I I love music. And I was like, wow, this is such an interesting um, artist that I have overlooked my entire life. Do you see if there's other people like me who are, you know, seeing her as like a largely forgotten figure? Is she reemerging in the public consciousness? What is her status as like a known artist uh, today?
1: She is much better known today than she had been for the past 50 years. In her heyday in the 1940s and 50s, she was a superstar, Okay, an absolute superstar. She was traveling um, both domestically and internationally. She was packing out arenas. She actually staged a wedding at the Griffith Stadium in, in Washington, D.C. at some point. Nice. Like, she, she was a mega, 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 mega star. But towards the end of her life, she began getting sick and she wasn't necessarily on the road as much. This didn't necessarily not make her a star, but it meant she wasn't traveling as much and probably wasn't making as much money. Um, So like after she passes away, it her legacy kind of dwindles and her grave is actually left unmarked in Philadelphia until
0: 2009.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is kind of, it's very sad, but you know, I'm gonna bring up again, cause Gail Wald is the one who wrote the biography of her and really, like dug through the troves to find these videos and audios that you're able to witness now on YouTube. And she says that history just didn't get Rosetta and uses get as like this really operative word, meaning that because she didn't fit neatly into gendered or sexual religious or even musical binaries and categories she was kind of left out of the fold and not recognized for her substantial contributions until recently now she's been inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame um, and many many more people know about her than than previously but it was it took a long time for her to get the recognition that she deserved
0: how did she navigate her friendship with uh with Roxie and more Marie Knight? Like w- tell me about this little supportive trio of friendship that uh that you feature in the article.
1: Yes, there are there are two stories, two stories that convinced me that I wanted to do the work on this. Oh, trip. nice. I added a fourth person, but I don't talk about her in the article, but both Rosetta and Roxy experienced very rocky, stay on the R's, very rocky um, first marriages. And Roxy has actually come out and said that her first marriage was abusive and she had to run away to kind of find safety. Rosetta apparently detailed to Roxy Uh, some of the details of her marriage, but Roxy doesn't want to share it or didn't want to share it publicly while she was living. But Rosetta had already gone to New York and was performing. And Roxy actually runs away from her husband to New York. Um, And Rosetta and Rosetta's mother, Katie Bell Newbin, house her while she's able to get her life back on track, while she's trying to figure out how to get her child who she ended up having to leave with her ex-husband at that time, they they literally give her physical sanctuary to figure out what she's gonna do. Um, and then there's near the end of Rosetta, all of their lives, but Rosetta, her death, or not her death, because she was, she was sick, um, but after her death, she has this funeral and neither Roxy nor Marie trust anybody else to take care of Rosetta the way that they would. So Roxy ends up writing the eulogy and performing the eulogy, and Marie is the one that performed for the funeral, but she also prepares Rosetta's body. So these two times and these deeply intimate acts of providing sanctuary and then to preparing somebody's body uh, for for burial, that's the type of friendship that they had. It wasn't just, oh, you know, I saw you in the concert hall and we waved. It was, no, wherever you are in life at that time, I'm here for you. I will take care of you even until death.
0: Amazing. And a quote in the article that you wrote really stands out to me about the friendships between Brianna and her friends and sister Rosetta and her friends. And you write, they were able to see in each other a luminance unrecognized by the world, which I found to be so beautifully stated. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit more about this quote?
1: Yeah, it was simply my way of saying that they saw each other before fame, even into fame and recognition through their various trials and tribulations, both in the musical industry, but also interpersonally with their marriages and their children. They supported each other and throughout saw each other's light when the world didn't. When Rosetta was, quote unquote, forgotten, there were people that she wasn't forgotten to. And that's Roxy and Roxy's family and Marie and Marie's family. They're all taking care of each other and each other's legacy. And despite a world that doesn't want to see Black women thrive, um, that would rather see their lights tamped out, they're the ones that keep kept each other's lights burning. They're the ones that saw in each other this luminance that I talk about in the in the piece.
0: Mm, I loved it. And that that line really stood out. And you know, in the weeks after Brianna's murder in the article you write that you turned inward personally, um, have you made any sort of like commitments to your work or relationships or friendships in ways that you might not not have had you not had that period of inward reflection?
1: Absolutely. I definitely take more time building and developing my relationships. And I see it as a very important part of my own, not only survival, but my thriving in the world there, you know, academia can be isolating at times, particularly for me right now. I'm dissertating with a lot of people really correlate with, um, (laughs) with isolation and you're in the corner with your books and you don't talk to anybody, but this, experiencing this literally reoriented my work. I started thinking, I can't do this without community. I cannot do this without a strong community and friendships to support me. And in order to have that, I also have to be supportive and I also have to be there and be present. I'm also making sure that the community surrounding my work, the Black women in my narratives, have access to and a say in what I produce. So I said before, I am in conversation, constant conversation with Roxy Moore's family. I let them see my work before it's ever released. I ask them about sensitive materials that I would like to write about, but will not without their permission. And that goes against a lot of like scholarly people who will say, oh, you know, it's all fine. If it's in service of the work, you have to tell the truth. But for me, they are the people that have to live with the legacies that I write about. And it's important for me in service of them and in service of my work to do that justice. And then I also I make sure to take time and recognize the luminance in myself and others. When things like this happen, when, when Breonna Taylor happened, when George Floyd happens, I, I actively stop and pause um, and revamp and kind of reframe my own luminance and, and really devote and dedicate time to the people in my world that love and care about me.
0: Well, Amber, earlier in our interview, you said that when you got to Oberlin Conservatory, you saw people who really wanted to to be there. Do you know what I mean? Like they were they were doing what uh was really necessary in order to to follow that professional pursuit. And to me, it's completely clear that you have found that piece for yourself outside the conservatory. And so I feel like right now you have. That fire that was driving your classmates in conservatory, and you just found it on a slightly different track, which uh, is so wonderful. Um, Amber, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work, if they want to follow your professional pursuits in the future? Where would you direct people's attention?
1: Yes, I am back on social media. Um, you can find me at Amber Linnae, which is A M B R E L Y N A E. on all platforms. And then you can also follow my work at AmberDrumgle.com. I'm sure somewhere in the podcast, my name will be listed. It's just my first name and my last name.com. And then you can keep up with me.
0: Excellent. And for anybody out there listening, uh, if you go into the show notes underneath the podcast in your podcast app, you will find direct links to uh, some of Amber's work. Well, Amber Drumgle, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Um, and in this time of isolation, this is sustaining for me to make connections with people doing great work such as yourself. And I'm really grateful to you for your time and energy in coming on Classical Ideas. It's been a real thrill.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. This has been wonderful.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. Support for this episode of Classical Ideas was provided by Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation project. Explore the work of Sacred Rights at sacred-rights.org.